Well, open your Bibles with me if you've got them, or you can go through the Sunday links and jump on there with me. I'm going to preach my best attempt at a short message, and everyone laughed at that. But I really am, because we have a quite a good length video. We've got seven people that are being baptized today, and we want to share their testimonies. Even though they're being baptized in the next service, we want the church to know the story of what God's doing in their life and to celebrate that with them, that they're declaring their faith to everyone. So uh, it's going to be really fun. We get to watch that here in just a few minutes. But before we do, I want to spend some time in the Word with you as we continue our series, Love Does. Love is not just an emotion. Love is not just a feeling. Um, you know, Night at the, the, night, night the Roxbury, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. You know, it's, it's not just... We're asking, what is the question of love? Love does. Love is who God is, and God took his love and expressed it to us. That's what we unpacked last week, is that God it literally encompasses the definition of love, and then he took that love and gave it action through Jesus. And he, it gave him great pleasure to do so. I love that verse that we shared this last week, because sometimes we think that God loves us, but that's kind of out of some sort of obligation. But the fact that he actually likes us is a great feeling. To know that he celebrates us and sings over us and that it's not just out of his obligation to us, but that he takes pleasure in us. And, uh, and so this week we're going to continue in this love does vein, but what does that then mean to us? So let's go back to our base camp. We're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. If you have your Bibles, we'll be there first. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. And most of our series will be in the book of 1 John, which is almost to the very, very back of your Bibles, all right? 1 John 4... 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God, and anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Right? God is love. So, what I want to start today with an understanding of is that identity comes before instruction. Identity comes before instruction. Theologically, we say indicatives come before imperatives. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, imperatives are commands. If it's imperative, you do something, it's a command, right? And so God gives us these imperatives, but there's indicatives that come before that. And indict- an indicative is a statement of fact. So often, especially when Paul writes, he'll give a statement of fact, and then he'll say something like, Therefore, let us. And he comes in with a command for us to follow. And so these, these indicatives that we're to follow come with, or these imperatives that we're to follow come with this indicative statement. In the same way, when we read 1 John, there's an, in, there's an imperative uh, that's listed here, but before it is an indicative, an indicative statement of fact. That is, God is love. That's our fact. God is love. Therefore, how do we live? And we look at those prior verses. What's, what's the imperative that follows, that, that precedes this? Let us continue to love one another. Let us continue to love one another. As we experience and abide within the love of God, as we talked about last weekend, there's a natural response that we need to have that flows from that identity. As we recognize our identity that we are loved by God, designed with purpose, that He takes pleasure in us, there should be a natural response that we live out as believers. John gives us then some reasons to which we're to live this imperative of love that we're called to, to love one another. So the first thing is this, love will keep us on track. Love will keep us on track. First uh, John, again, three eighteen and 19, he says, Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other, let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. What's that saying? 
talk is cheap. Anybody ever heard that saying? Anybody ever heard the saying, I put your money where your mouth is? You're flapping your gums, talking a lot, but where's the actual, you know, action behind it? This is what John is talking about here. He's saying, he's saying, let us not just say that we love each other. We got to show it by living it out. You see, when we're busy about the father's business, there's not a, there's, there's a whole lot less time we have to be distracted by things that are not loving. When we're living out the, the, the calling to live in love, there's a whole lot less time we have for not edifying each other or building up people around us. Um, how many of you know, that, that's the reason there's no loitering signs that are around, because when you're just standing around, you tend to get into trouble. When you're just standing around, you, I, idleness kind of leads to trouble. Um, and so uh, we see here that what happens when we stop being busy with the right things is we start getting busy with the wrong things. We tend to become busy bodies. And that's what's, what we're warned about. As a matter of fact, in 2 Thessalonians three eleven through 13, Paul says, Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. You see, they were... They were Kind of in cruise control. They weren't doing anything with their lives. And so they're taking that space, that time, that energy and filling it with things that were unproductive. Let me tell you, when we're living out a life that's productive and, do, and, and we're living with purpose, if I'm building something in my shop, I have a lot less time to get into trouble doing other things. If we're constructive, and here in Thessalonians, he says, we're never to grow tired of doing good. Love does. It's played out through action. Rather than meddling, Paul emphasizes they should instead never get tired of doing good. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mother Teresa said this. She said, love cannot remain by itself. It has no meaning. Love has to be put into action, and that action is service. Love just, it, it, it's a, it doesn't fit together to say love just does its own thing and sits there. It's compelled to action and to do good things. Now, good works that Paul is talking about here is different than doing just good things. Uh, anyone can do good things. I would think that most people, if they saw someone drop their groceries out in the parking lot and struggling to pick them up, would offer to go help, right? That's a good thing. We're, we try to be Boy Scouts in that way and, and, and Girl Scouts and do good things. But let me tell you, good work in Scripture is not just an altruistic act. It's not just doing nice things, but rather it's a good thing to which God has been attached. It's, it's being about God's business. The biblical love that we're called to is the decision to compassionately and righteously and responsibly and sacrificially and biblically meet the needs of somebody else. Meet somebody else in their need. And so it's actually counter. How many of us would actually go out of our way for a stranger to help them when there was maybe not even a response of thanks back, a response of love back, or maybe even pushback on that? And that's the love that we're called to, especially with one another. We're called to an, another level of love within the body of Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 5, and 6 says, the purpose, Paul says, the purpose of my instruction, he's writing this letter to a guy named Timothy. He's a young pastor in a church, and he's instructing him. And he says, my, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with what? Love, love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed the whole point. They've turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. 
So here again we see that when we are filled with love, what, what's the response here? We, it comes with genuine faith. It comes with clear conscience. And then he says, but some people have missed the point. They aren't living this out. Rather, they're using their time and spending their efforts in meaningless discussions. It's starting to fill that space. Um, and, and let me tell you, sometimes we can feel like we've accomplished a whole lot with a big discussion or a big argument or a big committee meeting. And we've come to a decision on something. But what has that really changed? Uh, D.L. Moody, I have this quote actually in a picture frame on my, on my uh, desk. It says this, our greatest fear should not be a failure. It should be of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. And sometimes we succeed at a whole lot of things that really don't have end result matter. And Paul's warning us of that. He says, if you are filled with love, are you running around trying to just fill in the void with with discussions? Maybe you'll come to a decision you think is fantastic, but what has it changed in your world? What transformative thing has it done? Let's not get caught up in arguing semantics. The world is not changed by people who argue this way or that. Eternity is transformed by people who don't just say love or search for a feeling, but are doing something with that love that lives within them. And that love should compel us. And so when we live out that love, it's going to prove, the next thing that we see is it's going to prove the legitimacy of our faith. Let's look back at 1 John 3.18. It says, Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. So love compels us to actions. Actions then reveal what's really going on, the legitimacy, the, the legitimacy of our faith. Have you ever wondered, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know it? Um, let me first of all say, if, if, if you have ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Romans is very clear that if you've confessed him as your Savior, that he is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him, and you have, um, you have declared him as your Lord and Savior, the Bible is very clear that he is your Lord and Savior. And that you, you have salvation. Um, you don't have to raise your hand every single week that salvation is offered. You have been saved. We are secure in that salvation. Now, the enemy will try to steal that assurance of your salvation. The enemy will try to tell you, you know what, you, did he, are you really saved? Let me tell you, that, that I, I've known many people who have been following Jesus that, that wrestle with that. The enemy wants to deceive you. But another thing we can tell is, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that there's assurance in our salvation by how we act in love. Romans eight fifteen and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit of God reminds us that we are God's children. Amen? You know what? The enemy wants to come and deceive us and make us fall back into that spirit of fear, but we can cry to him, Abba, Father. However, there are evidences of what we have as the real deal. It's like a, a watch, a Rolex. How do you know it's a real Rolex? I will tell you, if you see me wearing a Rolex, probably not real. Um, but uh, I went online. How do you tell what a real Rolex is? When I was uh, in like eighth grade, we went to New York with my class and, and uh, all my friends were very excited to get out on the street and find a guy with a briefcase that was going to sell them a, a fake Rolex. They're like, oh, I'm going to get a Rolex. And uh, there's several ways that you can easily tell a fake. Uh, the weight of the Rolex is different. A real Rolex will have different weight. The movement within the watch is different. They're, 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 they have a very unique and special movement. There's markings on the watch that you can tell um, in the serial number, the quality of the engraving. Anyone who's worth their salt in the jewelry business or knows anything about watches should be able to look at it and immediately go, this is real, this is false, this is genuine, this is a ripoff. 
And so, in the same way, when we look at our faith, how do we know we've got the real McCoy? How do we know it's genuine? 1 John 3, 14. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it, what? Proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. There's a natural response when we have put our faith in Jesus When we have put our faith in him, that we move from death into life. And so what metrics do we typically do, though, to evaluate ourselves or to evaluate our faith or maybe the strength of our witness or how we're doing in this or that? Even as a church, how do we measure how successful we are? Maybe it's the number of followers we have on our uh, social media uh, maybe it's in the attendance we have on a Sunday, or uh, maybe it's your income. Maybe it's how your bosses speak about you, or, or how many people attend your life group. Maybe the compliments you receive, or pe- the things you hear that people say about you, the nice things that tickle your ears. You know, there's lots of things we use to measure ourselves, what group we're in, who considers me part of their in-group. And we measure our, our quality of who we are, but what did God say when he selected David? He said, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the, the heart. God sees something more. He sees the love that we live out. God sees the heart issue that's going on. So we may have these outward things that we like to measure. I like metrics. I like to be able to measure things. But God looks at something far greater. First Corinthians, Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. Probably one of the greatest quoted verses on love in the Bible. If you've ever been to a wedding ever, you've probably heard it before. It says, if I could speak in all languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained zilch. Paul, probably someone who could have pointed back to all he had accomplished. As a Pharisee, as a follower of Christ, himself an apostle. Written letters that were held by the church in in such high regard it was canonized to scripture. This guy said, even if I had all these things and could understand all mysteries and all knowledge, all of it would be worth nothing if I don't have love. Love is what it comes down to, and love is something that must be lived out in a believer's life. You see, living in love is, how, is not how we get eternal life. It's not how we earn it, but it should be the result of a life that's been transformed. Authentic and sacrificial love stands in such contrast to the world around us. The closer we grow in relationship to the author of love, the more we should grow in relationship and love for one another. If you read 1 John, it's not just talking about loving everybody which is important but he's especially talking about loving the brothers and sisters in the church our love for one another should mark us um you'll see here i brought my bicycle wheel it was really hard riding a wheelie all the way to church here today but um you'll notice this wheel there's there's spokes around it imagine with me that these spokes represent each of us as members of the church And imagine with me that this hub represents God. As each one of us draws closer to God, do you notice that each one of these spokes draws closer to each other? That that space gets closer and closer between. And so this is why it's so important when we say, I've heard people say, you know what, I love God, I just don't love church. It's impossible to grow close to God without growing closer to one another. 
It's impossible to say, you know what, Jesus, I, I, love, I love your body. I just don't like your bride all that much. And, and so uh, to, to, to say I, I live in close community with God but not with one another, it, it's incongruous. It doesn't fit together. And so it's important that we understand that when we say that we are committed to one another, it is, it is actually in drawing close to God. We knit together. First John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Anyone who hates another brother or sister, ooh, this is heavy, is really a murderer at heart. And you know what, that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, it's impossible to love the Lord without loving our brothers and sisters. John, who wrote this book, also wrote one of the Gospels that bears his name. Um, it's called the Gospel of John, in case you were wondering. Um, and in John, th- <laughs> in John 13, um, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples. This is his final night on earth with his, with his disciples. And they arrive to the house. And the tradition is when you come into a house, especially to stay, there's a servant there with a bowl of water and they wash your feet. And... Uh, this is, this is required because uh, back then they didn't have closed-toed shoes like we wear now. Birkenstocks were required. That was all they had. And, uh, that or barefoot. And they also walked on dirt roads. It was a very arid, dusty climate. And so it's because it's hot outside, your feet get sweaty, and you're walking in dust and everything else that is on the roads that animals walk on as well. And so your feet get covered in gross. And you go into a house and you don't want to track that gross all over the house. So a servant is waiting there to wash your feet. Well, apparently when Jesus and his disciples get there, there's no one there to wash their feet. And so what happens? In verse 1, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. And he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had around him. When we read this, there's a few just profound things that we see that's happening here. First of all, it says, John says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. And that he had come from God. So he did this. Is that a crazy... That word there, that so word is so powerful. Like, wait a minute. You just said that he is literally equal to the God of the universe. And that he is literally all powerful. If anything, it should be so he told someone, get over here and start scrubbing. Do you know whose presence you're in? That would be the so I would read. But instead it says, so he got up and started washing people's feet. What a mind-boggling twist there. So, because he knew who he was, because he knew who he was in light of the Father, because he was the God of the universe, he took on the form of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. It's because Jesus was operating out of who he knew he was in the kingdom of God that he was completely secure in doing it. It's insecure people that have a hard time getting down and washing feet, right? What will people think of me? What does this say about myself? Are people going to assume I'm going to do this from now on? Because Jesus knew who he was, he was able to operate. Let me tell you, for those who don't know who they are in God, it's the task that defines them. I'll say that one more time because it was good. 
For those that don't know who they are in God, it's the task that defines them. If I have a good job, if I have a good title, if people see me as this or that, that's my definition. I've earned it. Rather, for those who know their identity in Christ, the task flows from that identity. The identity does not come from the task. We take on the form of a servant because we know who we are in Christ. We serve one another in love because of who we are in His love. It changes the dynamic. It changes the power ratio of what we're looking for. When we're struggling for power, like we see the disciples doing, even up until this moment, on the way to Passover, they were arguing about who was the greatest. And in this power dynamic struggle, Jesus shows what it really looks like to operate from the form of a servant because he knew his identity. In the same way, we serve one another, not because, well, I'm trying to really one-up people so people see how loving I am, but rather because of what Christ is to me and who I am in Christ, I can love you. Are you tracking with me, church? Are we here? I love it. I love it. And another thing that just blows my mind as I studied this this week, is that Jesus even welcomed his betrayer to sit at the table and eat with him. Judas, who would turn Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver, sat at that same table and ate, and that means that Jesus washed his feet too, knowing that he would turn him in to be crucified. Love isn't always easy. Remember, authentic love isn't just given because it's reciprocated. That's the easy kind of love to give back, right? It's easy for me to love people that love me. It's given preemptively, not because of something anyone did to earn it. And that's tough, especially when people do hurtful things that would not be deserving of love or acting unlovely towards us. People we feel they're in the body of Christ and they should treat us differently. Anybody ever been there? You call yourself a Christian. And as Jesus sat at the table, here's what he said. Literally, while he's at that table, here's what he said in verse 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. This is the new commandment I'm giving you. Love each other. I'm sure he saw them fight and squabble and squawk all the way to dinner that night. And over the last three years that he spent with them, who's the greatest? Who can catch the most fish? Who's this? Who's that? He says, I'm calling you to a new commandment to love each other. It's not an option. It's a command. It's not, hey, some people have this gift. It's we're all called to it. Jesus says, you've seen what I've done. You've seen me wash feet here. You're going to know in a little bit what your, your very, one, someone that's in our very group, Judas, has done. And yet I knew what he was going to do and I did it for him. Now go and do likewise. Go and live this out. And Jesus gives this massive command. You just saw how I washed your feet. Soon you're going to see how you should be serving one another. And I'm commanding you to love one another the same way I have loved you. Continuing on in verse 35, he says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your commitment to each other will prove to the world that you're to my disciples. This is my last point here. Our love is a statement to the world. Our love for one another is a statement to our world. Steadfast love for one another. Sacrificial love. Radical commitment to each other. That's a love that the world can't comprehend. The world, we live in a dog-eat-dog world. I am going to devour you before you devour me. I need to one-up you before you one-up me. And if we live as people who serve one another before we look for our own means, it's not natural. It's, it, it, it comes across as, as, as bizarre. But let me tell you, it is transformative when they look and say, I want that, whatever they have. 
I want to be able to love like they love. I want to be able to receive love like they receive love and be able to love despite like they are able to love despite. So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we love people that are unlovable at times? How do we love people that hurt us and wound us? How do we love despite difficult circumstances? Bottom line is it has to come from the overflow. We can't love out of our own effort. Our own effort of, I just got to be a more loving person because we will always let ourselves down doing that. We are always going to come up short when we're like, I just need to be a more loving person. Ah! <laughs> we, will, we, will, we will fall short. We will disappoint ourselves. We will disappoint the people around us. It has to come from the overflow of God in us. And that means spending time with the author of love. That means being washed. Just like Jesus washed the disciples' feet just bathed in his love, and then we're able to pour out that love on those around us. It comes from the author of love. We will never have the capacity to love perfectly when we're not washed in the love of God ourselves. So we need to spend time in that love. Well, this morning I'm so excited because we get to hear from people who have experienced that love of God. Experience that uncompromising, unshifting unlimited uh, it's it's not based on if you can do this for me or if you're this kind of person but rather have you put your faith in me do you give me your heart salvation is yours i don't think there's a single person on earth that can love like that without having some sort of caveat one sort of one so, what, something that kind of is like that that catch but god says believe in your heart that i am lord give me your heart Declare me as your savior and I will give you full salvation and joy in salvation. I think in these stories you're going to hear, you are going to see joy on faces. Testimonies being spoken out of what God has done. And so before we go to that, I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I talk about this love that we need to express and maybe you have never experienced that kind of love in your life. But you want to experience the love of God. And I don't want to close the service out without this opportunity, especially on a baptism Sunday. So if you're in this room this morning and you have never given your life to Christ and you say, Pastor Brent, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. Will you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Thank you. I see that hand. Yes, thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Right now I'm going to pray over us as we respond to this love of God, unmerited, unearned but given freely. Lord, I thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus. With this person, and I'm hoping others that raise their hand or are really considering this, Lord, right now we say, Jesus, we believe that you are God. We believe that you died for us. For me, a sinner. I believe that you rose again. And you offer life. And so right now, I receive that life. Come into my heart. Forgive me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. From this day forward, I will follow you. Let my life be marked by love. A new love that I couldn't understand. That I can't produce. But only comes from you. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at these testimonies before we go.